investors want to make money. Like they're, they're not investing to solve a problem. They care about your problem and they care that it's a big enough problem that the market needs it solved, but actually they want something that is going to generate a return on their investment. That's why they are giving you money. And so we needed to be telling the story from a metrics point of view through the numbers. This is The Raise, where we take you behind the scenes into the capital raising journeys of startup founders. Some you may have heard of, others you need to hear about, and all of whom have been through it to close a raise. On the show, you'll learn how founders make the difficult decisions. Whether you're a founder yourself or you're simply interested in the fast-moving, innovative world of startups, this show is for you. I'm your host, Mylin Dang. I'm Managing Director of capital raising law firm, Metis Law. For over a decade, I've worked with founders to raise capital so they can build businesses that make a lasting impact. Hello, founders and friends. My guest today on The Raise is Nogger Edelstein. Nogger is the co-founder of Urban U, one of the first and certainly the most successful home service booking platforms in Australia. Nogger successfully exited in 2018. Today, she sits on the other side of the table as an advisor and investor at Tractor Ventures, a fund that helps unlock possibilities for startup founders through non-dilutive capital and hands-on advisory services. With this 360-degree experience, Nogger is uniquely positioned to help founders looking to raise capital and scale their startups. In the first of this two-part interview, you'll hear how Nogger's early acting career helped build her resilience for capital raising, how she beat her competitors by validating her customers, and what actually makes a pitch get heard by investors. Let's dive in. Nogger, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Nogger, I'm going to ask you a question that uh, you probably ask startups all the time. What's your elevator pitch for Tractor? Yeah, sure. So Tractor Ventures exists to unlock possibilities for founders. And we do that through a couple of ways. The first is through capital. So we provide non-dilutive capital for startups. And that generally takes the form of revenue-based financing or essentially a loan. And the other way we do that is through our Tractor Village, which is the social capital side of Tractor and through advisory services where we get hands-on and help our founders to scale up and achieve their growth opportunities. And what types of startups do you work with? So at Tractor, we work with a a really broad spectrum, but it can often be bootstrapped founders who are ready to take some capital to leverage some opportunities without having to sell shares. It does tend to be software businesses, technology businesses in the main, but through all of my kind of general investment and advisory work, I have advised a broad broad spectrum of startups. And what I've realized is that the experience you gain as a founder is so applicable to so many types of businesses. And what's the big audacious dream for Tractor Ventures? We are trying to really, when we say unlock possibilities for founders, we're trying to do that in so many different ways, let them live their best life. And whether that's by building their own wealth, whether it's by changing the world with the companies that they're building, you know, we exist to really enable all of that to happen. 
I love that it's non-dilutive. It's one of the big concerns for founders is is being diluted out of their own and co- companies. We'll get in a little bit more into Tractor Ventures, but before we do, you've had a small career in commercials and TV shows. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well picked up. <laughs> so in my I suppose, primary school, high school, university days. So my teens and early 20s, I was, I did some professional acting. So did a bunch of TV shows and films. This is going to show my age now, but a lot of the old ABC shows, Police Rescue, GP. I was in the a movie called The Punisher with Dolph Lundgren, which gets some people a little bit excited. But it's interesting because that journey really, when I reflect on it, taught me so much about resilience. That experience of going to auditions and getting knockbacks and having to pick yourself up as a kid and realise it's not personal, it's because you have brown hair, not blonde hair or whatever it might be has really helped me through my startup journey when pitching to investors and you're getting knocked back after knocked back. It really did help to build that resilience muscle. As a young person, how did you deal with those knockbacks? Oh, it's tough. And I think at the beginning, you do take it really personally. Was I not good enough? What could I have done better? And I think as you become more experienced, firstly, you get just have to have a thick skin. Like really, you just have to be able to just get pick yourself up, get back into it. But also, as I say, like you realize it's not always about you. That is so relevant to startups as well. Like if you're pitching a social impact venture to a a VC that invests in B2B SaaS, it's not you. <laughs> you know, they're just never going to be able to change their mandate to invest in your business. And and that is a good lesson to learn as a young person that not everything is personal. Figure out what people want and then how to sell that to them. So after your illustrious career in acting, <laughs> you ended up studying law and you graduated from university. You worked as a lawyer and you worked in big law and corporate including with Yahoo. Then in 2013, you founded a startup called Urban U. And I'm really excited because I, I, I have used Urban U. Oh, that's awesome. Which was a marketplace for on-demand home services. And that company was acquired in 2017 by OneFlare. And OneFlare itself was acquired by Airtasker earlier this year. Yeah, that's right. You really were one of the early startups, at least in the Sydney startup scene. What made you decide to start your own business after a career in law? So I was at Yahoo, as you mentioned, and I was the general counsel there. And Yahoo at the time was this incredible place full of opportunity. We were the first of everything on the internet. So we had the first online dating. We had the first online radio streaming. We had the first online community with answers. Like it really just was a very exciting place and just there was a real startup vibe, which I absolutely loved. And I liked going to work every day and not knowing what the answer was going to be, having to figure it out. There was this real kind of cohort of people that were going off to start their own businesses. And so it opened my eyes to the world of possibilities. The other thing about that place was they allowed us to experiment and do things. So even though I was a lawyer, I ended up running business development for the search marketing team because there was a gap and I put my hand up and I was able to do it. And so I felt really empowered to do new things. And while I was there, I met my co-founder, Elkie Keeley, and we kind of bonded over this experience of being busy working professionals, trying to get stuff done around the house, but never having the time to do it, taking a day off work to let a trade in and invariably they wouldn't show up. It was also around the time Uber had launched and everything was going on demand. And we just, we we really love that concept of 
bringing that experience to, to services and home services. Your dad was a bit of an entrepreneur himself. What sort of businesses did he run and were you involved in any of those? It's funny because until I really started my business, I never thought of him as an entrepreneur. I, I think that word is such a new word, isn't it? Just he had businesses. Like it's really cool to reflect back on that now and see how that influenced me. So I was born in Israel. He was Australian, came back to Australia to be with his family and he hadn't gone to university. So he didn't really have a career. We'd lived on a kibbutz in Israel. And so when we landed in Australia, he spoke to some friends who had stalls at Paddy's Markets and they were like, you should do that. I'll, I'll set you up. We've got suppliers for shoes, come sell shoes at Paddy's Markets. And so he did that and he set up stalls and he did that for many years. And I worked with him from a very young age, like my earliest memories of hanging out with my dad are driving in the shoe truck <laughs> early mornings to Paddy's Markets. And I worked with him as like a nine-year-old. And I remember like wearing this money belt and saying to people, can I help you? And they'd look around and like, where's this where's the salesperson? And they'd look down at this little nine-year-old girl. <laughs> and that was such a good experience because I think it also made me not shy to try and sell and try and help people and try and solve their problems. At one point, he owned a soft drink factory with other family members back when you used to deliver soft drinks directly to the house. That was a complete failure. Wow. <laughs> and then he ended up having like tax practices. So yeah, he just always had different businesses. It was just wrong timing, the, the soft drink delivery, wasn't it? It was way too early. <laughs> Change in the market coming, yeah. <laughs> I, I love that story. I have a similar experience growing up. Both my parents worked in the rag trade and some of my earliest memories were sitting in there in the van, the Toyota Hi-Ace to go into the city, the air conditioner not working and the doors down. So yeah, some great memories. So you founded Urban U with Elkie Keeley and you only had $15,000 in savings at the time. And in just three years, the business grew to having 8,000 users, 18,000 services provided and over $3 million in revenue. What do you attribute to that success? I'm glad you knew all those numbers. I'm not sure I would have recalled them. So thank you. Part of it is, as you say, timing, actually. Like we picked the right time to launch an on-demand business when everything was moving to that experience. As I say, Uber had just launched and consumers were getting used to the idea of pressing a button on their phone and ordering things. They were also getting used to online payments. It was 2013 we launched. It wasn't much before that where people wouldn't even put their credit card on the internet to buy something. They felt unsafe about it, but we really kind of managed to find the right point in that kind of journey through e-commerce and payment security to launch. The other part of it, as I say, everything, ideas are great, but it's all about execution. And I think what we did really well was understand the underlying consumer need we were serving was trust actually. And what we needed to do was build trust because we were delivering these home services. So cleaners, gardeners, handymen that were coming into your home, which is a very different experience to buying a book from Amazon, right? Like if the book doesn't arrive on time or you don't enjoy it, well, you've wasted your 20 bucks, but it's neither here nor there. Whereas if you have a an experience when someone comes into your home and you feel unsafe or they don't show up on time, that's a really different kind of experience. And so 
Because we really understood that and we were the consumer, I mean, we built this business to solve problems that we were experiencing. We were able to really speak to our users and solve that need. And it was interesting because a lot of other businesses started at about the same time doing similar things. So on-demand cleaning went through a bit of a boom and we were the ultimately the successful business in that space because we understood that better than anyone else. And what others were doing was just solving it with technology. Technology. So they would just have an on-demand booking experience, which was probably better than our on-demand booking experience, if I'm honest. But they didn't have that assurance that things were going to go smoothly. We were meeting our providers in person, face-to-face to make sure they were clean, they smelt nice, <laughs> all of those things that goes into making that experience. So I think we really understood that better than anyone else in our market. What did you do to learn about what your customer wanted. I'll speak for a moment about the supplier side because, you know, we were a marketplace. So we had two customers. We had the users who were booking the services and then we had the suppliers who were delivering them. And we made a margin on what the difference in the cost was between what the we were paying the supplier and what the consumer was paying. So in some ways the supplier really was our our customer. And we made, yeah, some really crucial errors at the early stage of onboarding our suppliers. So what what we did was we kind of thought like if we were a consumer and we wanted to find the best cleaners, the best gardeners, what would we do? And I thought, well, I would go to an online review site like True Local at the time and look at the top rated supplier. So we paid somebody, (laughs) I'm going to say thousands of dollars. So out of that 15,000 that we first invested, like a big chunk of it went to somebody to scrape the internet and build us a database of all of the top rated suppliers in this space. And it took like, it took them about a month to do it. So when you're on this startup journey, a month is a big space of time. We didn't test any of those assumptions first, which was a huge mistake. So we didn't get on the phone and call the top rated guy on True Local and speak to him and say, do you want to do this? We just waited for this big dump of data. And then we started cold calling all of the suppliers. Um, And what we learned super quickly was that the guy who is the top rated cleaner on True Local does not need any more business because he is really busy. (laughs) And it's not necessarily because he's the best. It's because he's figured out how to use online marketing already. And so that was a big learning experience that we really should have firstly tested that assumption before we went and spent all that money and wasted all of that time. And secondly, we had to put ourselves in the minds of the user, of the the, the supplier, right? So we went back and said, okay, so there's got to be people who are just as good at what they do, but don't know how to use online marketing. Where are they? What are they doing to win business at the moment? And we thought, well, they're all on Gumtree. They're just posting ads on Gumtree and responding to ads on Gumtree. So then we tried that and almost instantly we had this really strong stream of warm leads, people who were looking for work. And it turned out that our ideal user was somebody who had worked in this industry before, but for somebody else and was branching out to start their first business, but had no idea how to win business themselves. And once we figured that out, we had really a really great source of supply. So in 2017, Urban U closed a $1 million raise in just 14 days, which is super fast by any standard. How did you pull that off? We had 
struggle to raise money. I'm not going to lie. Fundraising is a really unpleasant experience (laughs) for most people and anyone who's been through it will know it can be soul destroying. And so when we did our seed round, we'd struggled. We'd found it a really unpleasant experience. That resilience and that tough skin had come in very handy. And so when we were doing our next round, we knew we had to change something. We didn't know what we were doing wrong, but we knew we weren't quite nailing the way we were pitching. And so we were fortunate to be accepted into the SBE Tech Accelerator Program, which is specifically for female founders. It's the top 10 female tech businesses each year get accepted into this program. And we were super excited. We we knew how well it was regarded and their reputation for helping women to become investment ready. We really had an aha moment through that program where I realized that we were pitching Urban U from a very female emotional perspective. And so when we were going and talking to investors, it was generally rooms of white middle-aged men, because that is unfortunately still most of the investor community. And we were telling them about this really hard time we'd had as working mums trying to, you know, find a cleaner and their eyes would just glaze over and they would just not connect with the problem at all or see the market opportunity. And they'd kind of go, oh yeah, I'll, I'll tell my wife about it, but didn't see it as a business opportunity. And what we realized, and this seems so obvious now, but investors want to make money. Like they're, they're not investing to solve a problem. They care about your problem and they care that it's a big enough problem that the market needs it solved, but actually they want something that is going to generate a return on their investment. That's why they are giving you money. And so we needed to be telling the story from a metrics point of view through the numbers. And that's what we learned how to do at SBE was instead of telling them about this first world problem we had of finding a cleaner as a working mum, tell them that this was a $12 billion market opportunity. Outsource chores was a huge global trend. Urban U was growing double digits month on month. We had a 3% churn rate, which is almost unheard of. And once we started showing them how this was going to generate a significant return, it just changed like overnight. And so we came out of that program and yeah, we just closed the raise almost instantly. It was amazing. That is amazing. Now that you're on the other side of the table with Tractor Ventures, you must see many, many pictures and many of them also having numbers. What is it that you're seeing now that's making you excited in the pictures that are coming before you? So when I left Urban U, we sold the business in 2018 actually to OneFlare and then finished up a year after that. I went on this kind of journey myself around what I was going to do next. And that's a hard thing because I was a corporate lawyer and then I was a founder. What was it that I was going to be next? And actually along my journey, so after the SBE program, they asked me to join the board, um, which I had done. And so I've been a director on the board of SBE for five years now. And I become really involved in the ecosystem. And I found that I really loved supporting other early stage founders. Um, And in particular, I have this real knack now of (laughs) helping people pitch. (laughs) So I, I obviously learned along the way, I still have a little bit of fear of raising money myself. I think I've got some, uh, PTSD on that, but I'm really great at helping people break down their pitches. And so I see a lot of them. And I think one of the 
biggest mistakes people make is focusing too much on the problem to be solved and not telling investors about the solution and what the business model is and how it's ultimately going to generate money. You know, I see some pitch decks where people spend like a good five or six pages just going into depth on the problem. And what you need to understand is when you're a founder, like you care so much about your problem that you can talk about it underwater, you know, every little aspect of it, but it's, it's too much detail and investors kind of get so many pitch decks and you've got to get to the core of what you're doing really quickly and get to the point of how it's going to make their money. Before we go into that, I do have one question. You've mentioned one of the mistakes you made as a founder when you were at Urban U. What was the biggest mistake and biggest learning that you made from your experience at Urban U? underestimating who our consumer was as well was a real kind of mistake that took us a bit of time to figure out. So interestingly, we assumed that most of our consumers looked like us. So they were going to be working mums, probably in professional jobs, needing to get a cleaner or their husband, a gardener. So looking back at some of our early marketing materials, it's quite funny because we had like the images we used was crazy, busy juggling moms. It was very, very female focused. And what we realized once we started going to market was actually mums don't necessarily need recommendations for these services because they talk to each other all of the time about this stuff. If you're in a mother's group or you're out with your friends, like, hey, does anybody have a cleaner they can recommend? Those conversations happen all the time. However, men do not sit around the pub talking about cleaner recommendations, right? And so we really underestimated who our consumer was and the proportion of men that would make up our audience actually. And so when we ran one of our very first marketing campaigns, the first customer we ever got was a single dad because experienced the exact same problem, but didn't have that community around him to source recommendations. This is a common mistake that people make. And actually, it was your very first question to me, Maylene, which really illustrates how important it is. What do you do to learn who your consumer is? Really not understanding that early on. And in fact, our very first this is a little bit embarrassing to tell on a podcast, but the first name of our business, it wasn't Urban U. We were first called Virtual Mum. Like that just tells you how much we were embedded in that problem space for mums and really didn't research enough about who our consumer would be and what they needed. And so actually just before we went to market with that branding, we realized that we'd ne- we hadn't even talked to anyone. And so we sent out a survey about the business and it was that survey that came back with an overwhelming response saying, love the business idea, but obviously it's not for me because I'm not a mum. So not only had we got the gender, assumed the gender, we'd also assumed the mum role. Once we got to that, yeah, the business really started to grow. And how did you transition then from being on the board at SBE to Tractive Ventures? Uh, So I do a lot of things. I have a little bit of a portfolio career, I think is the word for it now. As I mentioned, been on the board for five years, but I do that at the same time as Tractor. I'm also a venture partner at Black Nova and I do some angel investing. So I like to be busy. And I think also when you're advising startups, it's important to really be immersed in it and do different things yourself. So your experience remains relevant. When I started advising, I really started seeing so many great businesses that I wanted to invest in them. Um, And in particular, through my work at SBE, I saw how few 
few women successful at raising money. And I should flip that. It's not that the women are unsuccessful in raising money. It's that so few dollars flow to female founders. In fact, I think the latest stats had it as less than 1% of VC funding goes to women, which is appalling. And yet they grow better businesses statistically. So I wanted to try and alleviate that. I also think a big part of solving that problem is having more women make investment decisions so that when you're a founder pitching, it's not just rooms of middle-aged white men. And so I wanted to help to be part of that solution. So I started learning about angel investing and yeah, so now I kind of do a variety of roles in that investment and advisory space. What do you think female founders can do for themselves to help themselves through the capital raising process? So there's a couple of challenges for women raising money. One of them is around networks and access to the people who have money. So if you think about the networks that men build over time, they're often at school with people who go on to work in the financial sector. They don't have to step out of the workforce at that crucial time. And so they do tend to build better, stronger networks with the financial decision, people who become financial decision makers. And so women need to think about how they can replicate that for themselves. So joining communities like SBE, you know, there's plenty of female focus networks now. There's Heads Over Heels, there's She Loves Tech, there's so many, but being conscious of actively building those networks because investors don't make decisions on giving you money usually after meeting you once, right? These are relationships that are built over time. So putting some effort into building those connections and maintaining them before you actually need to earn money is really, really important. And I think actually you can use being a woman to your advantage sometimes because there are so many networks just geared to um, providing that for women. I think getting more confident on numbers is another thing. It's a generalization, but in general, women are less comfortable with financial reports, with financial decision-making, with understanding metrics, and you really just have to force yourself to learn it. And that's something that I experienced. I'm, a, as you said, a lawyer by trade. And so for me, it's words, not numbers, <laughs> but you really have to, and you can't rely on anyone else to know your numbers. That comes out a lot when you're raising money and you're just discussing valuations and all that kind of thing. You're really at a disadvantage if you don't understand the arguments that your investors are putting to you around all of those things. The other part of it is getting comfortable with technology. You know, one of the big challenges for women raising money is often we're not the tech founder, we're the business people or the marketing people. And it's really hard for investors to put their money with a team of completely non-technical people. And I learned that the hard way. One of the reasons I think Elkie and I struggled to raise was because we were exactly that. We were non-technical founders and our investors had to have faith that we would find a technical co-founder or a CTO to join the business. And now on the other side of the table, I see why that is so important. Because if you're relying on an external party to build the, the core part of your business, you're a technology business, but you don't have that expertise in your founding team, that's a really big leap of faith to believe you're going to be able to bring that on board. So make yourself get comfortable with technology. You don't have to be a coder, but you need to understand enough about the tech language so when you're bringing someone on board, you can supervise them, you know what they're doing, you're not just blind about that core part of your business. 
and build the connections in that space so that when you're ready to raise money, you have a solution for that part of the problem ready to go. So you can go to investors and say, we know who we're going to hire or we've already built our first version or whatever it might be. So that's not a big question mark in their minds. That was so much gold from Noga on how to scale your startup by knowing your customers, building a strong investor network and pitching for impact. Subscribe to The Raise to listen to part two of the interview where we talk about the art of startup valuation and how to find the right investor for your startup. You've been listening to The Raise, a show that takes you deeper into founder stories about capital raising. We'll have all the contact details for Noga and Tractor Adventures in our show notes. If you'd like to learn how to raise capital like a guru, check out one of our free capital raising webinars. Head to termsheet.guru. That's T-E-R-M-S-H-E-E-T dot G-U-R-U. This podcast is brought to you by Termsheet Guru. Raise capital successfully and faster with Termsheet Guru so your startup can make an impact. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Raise, be sure to subscribe or follow the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, share the love and leave us a five-star review. It really helps us spread these amazing founder stories far and wide. I'm Mylin Dang, and we'll be back next episode with another deep dive into our founder's capital raising journey.